Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to the Vertical Podcast with JJ Redick. This week we are joined by writer and former NBA player Paul Shirley. This episode of the Vertical Podcast with JJ Redick is brought to you by Mack Weldon. Guys, whatever you're wearing right now, Mack Weldon is better. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershorts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. And Mack Weldon wants you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you. No questions asked. They aren't just comfortable. Mack Weldon looks good, and it performs well, too. It's good for everyday life, going to work, going on dates, and working out. All of their products are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code JJ. It's easy shopping, great customer service, good-looking, super comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, and hoodies. That's MacWeldon.com. 20% off using promo code JJ. Yahoo Sports presents the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. Powered by digital media. Find your voice. And now, your host, JJ Reddick. Hey guys, welcome back to the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. I have a great conversation with Paul Shirley coming. Paul was a little bit of a vagabond when he played in the NBA. He bounced around from team to team on short contracts. He played overseas for a number of years. He has a really interesting perspective on professional sports, on life, on music. We have a great conversation for you, so let's get right into that. This week's guest, Paul Shirley. Paul, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me and shepherding me through the process of the practice facility, which gave me the shakes a little bit, I have to admit, <laughs> as I walked in. I saw your, I actually saw your uh, your old, your ball coach Doc Rivers there. Oh yeah, and got a little nervous. I was like, is he going to start yelling at me now? <laughs> like, I just have this, this weird relationship with basketball coaches where inevitably they make me nervous, even if I'm not playing for them. When was the last time you were in a practice facility? Uh, it seems like I end up in them occasionally. Like I was in, maybe I was back in Chicago or something. I went to the Bulls just to see somebody, and uh, and every time there's this like PTSD that hits. Like, someone is going to make me do something I don't like. <laughs> I'm not good enough to be here. We're going to freak out. <laughs> were you traumatized that bad? Uh, I don't know. It, it's uh, I, like I have this fraught relationship with with basketball just because it was such a big part of my life. It never went quite like I thought it was going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of always on the outside in that I was probably not quite good enough to play in the NBA. But I was determined to make it like we all would be right so i was always on the margins and that meant i was kind of always like kowtowing i felt like i had to kowtow to everyone mm-hmm. but then if i was overseas i i sort of wanted to be there but i also kind of wanted to be back in the nba so i was never wholly invested in that either you know what i mean so i was like it it's just this sense of like maybe i shouldn't be here like who are these people they're <laughs> all cooler than i am <laughs> I've read a fair amount of your writing, and uh, yeah, it does seem like there's a little bit of like a love-hate relationship with basketball. Yeah. But is there anything like specifically about basketball that you hated? Uh, for example, 
running suicides or a coach yelling at you or being in the weight room or was there something that like you really just did not want to participate in? <laughs> well, I actually so the the truth is like I among people who know me or know my writing, I do tend to have this kind of reputation as a bit of a misanthrope, but I think the the truth is like I grew up in a small town in Kansas, like loving playing basketball. Before I got tall or got any sort of good, I just loved being outside and shooting. And I love the purity of just like standing there shooting a basketball. You you mentioned in, in, in something that I read, you have a little bit of OCD. And, yeah. and I can relate to that. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of anxiety too, which right. I wanted to ask you about in a little bit. But I think for me, that was initially what attracted me to basketball was that obsessive compulsive thing about mm-hmm. just going out and shooting over and over and doing something and, and almost like perfecting it. Totally. Well, like, so were you, were you at all a late bloomer? Because I was like, I was, I felt like I was behind developmentally in the sense of like everyone else was maturing much more quickly. And I kind of didn't understand it when I was like 12 and 13. Mm-hmm. But when I was on the basketball court, I could catch up. Like I was okay with who I was and mm-hmm. all of those sorts of things. And so I loved that. I used the, I used this analogy the other day, like I loved He-Man growing up. And so I think as a kid, the idea of like getting on the basketball court was my, by the power of gray school, I have the power. Like suddenly I was this, I, I didn't have to be a kind of shy slightly anxious kid anymore i could just be like whomever i wanted to be so did you identify at that point in your life did mm-hmm. you identify as a basketball player that was your identity was it sort of wrapped up well in basketball? It was, like i i kind of identified as a dork and as a basketball <laughs> player like i could cover up for the dorkiness because people liked yeah. athletes right so the fact that i was just constantly reading books i could paper over that in your school of 12 people <laughs> right <laughs> exactly Kansas well because yeah like, everybody knew who everybody was yeah. um so yeah I, I like i really loved basketball and i think that so they say in in great stories a lot of times the best sort of arch enemies are the people who were really close at the start the people who like had a lot in common and then diverged quickly. And so I think that's how I feel with basketball. Like I loved it so much. And then it kind of didn't, or it definitely didn't live up to the expectations I had. So I think that has caused me a fair bit of like cognitive dissonance in that I'm, I loved this thing so much, but it didn't really give back to me what I had hoped for. Mm -hmm. And therefore it, that made me be really hard on it for a while. I'm kind of like coming back where I can deal with it a little bit better, but yeah, there's an element of uh, negativity, maybe obviously sarcasm and and, and wittiness and dryness, but there is an element of negativity in, in, in some of the things you've written about basketball. What specifically in terms of your, your expectations in, in what you hope to get back from basketball wasn't met. So I mentioned to you that on on the drive-in, I was cramming a little bit, listening to the podcast that you did with Blake Griffin. And I think, like, I was a little bit envious, not a little, I was a lot envious of thinking about, here's two dudes who obviously get along really well, like, are smart and articulate and interesting to talk to. I just didn't find that very often. I didn't find that um, sense of camaraderie that I really was looking for. Like, I think more than anything, I loved about basketball, the community that it can provide, like being on a team and uniting against this common enemy of the other team or just kind of the world at large. And partially because I just by happenstance, and this I think is true of lots of basketball players, I didn't have a consistent team. I was bouncing around all the time and partially because a lot of basketball players are idiots and I just couldn't find a lot of in common with them. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it was hard to find that peer group or that like social 
continuity. I think a lot of people can identify with that. I think I've used this example in my podcast before, but my youngest sister played college basketball for Virginia Tech and Drexel. Mm-hmm. And when her career ended, she had a really hard time because so much of her activities, you know, were, were with her sort of peer group and her, her, her group of friends were all athletes and basketball players. And, and then you get out in the real world and it's, it's hard to sort of find that identity. And I mm-hmm. think a lot of people that played high school sports or college sports, that's something that they really enjoyed. And then I'm getting to, to why I sort of wanted you on the podcast this week. And that's this, this John Wall, Bradley Beal, um, revelation that they don't like each other and they don't get along and and you wrote an article for nba.com but you get to the nba and you realize that the camaraderie is not not exactly there and Mm -hmm. it's really that way and and i would say 99 percent of the locker rooms i mean that's just sort of it it comes with the territory and there's some factors out we'll talk about that but i want to talk about this this john wall and and bradley beal thing and Mm -hmm. sort of what you wrote about it yeah, so I uh, I mentioned the fact that uh, in this this piece that when I it, it, it is interesting to me because there is this confluence of writing and basketball even in the way I think about sports and that I I talk about the fact that when I was a kid I would go to the Topeka Public Library and wander amongst the stacks because it was cool as a reaction to the the hot Kansas summers and I, I started checking out biographies of athletes, specifically baseball players, because I was much more into baseball at the time. And what I really loved about reading about the Lou Gehrig's and Joe DiMaggio's of the world was that idea of them being in the locker room together and just like, there was a sense of like the jocularity of us all being in this together. And it didn't matter where you had come from or who you were, but you were all in this uh, little pod kind of working together towards something. And I think I loved the idea of like getting to leave my small Kansas town and go to the big city and play for a a pro sports team. Mm -hmm. And then that worked out. Like I got to do that, not in baseball, of course. Um, But then when I got there, it just was not at all like that. It was, it was more like each person was his own little corporation. There was a lot of individuality, which I think we all talk about, and it makes us sound a little curmudgeonly because we're like, well, back in the glory days when the guys cared about each other. The truth is that Mickey Mantle probably wasn't a great dude either, but there is that image and that myth that is attractive to a 12-year-old from Meriden, Kansas, and I think I was hurt that like the romance of that never really panned out. So we've had a few discussions recently on the podcast with guests about specific sports and and what sports kind of are more in what team sports are more individual sports and what team sports require a certain amount of chemistry and and Mm -hmm. soccer and basketball being two of the examples that require a certain amount of chemistry so there's like this weird balance that that the nba has to play with because the teams the really good teams have great chemistry Mm -hmm. but the league and its popularity is based off the fact that David Stern decided to market the individual. Right. And you mentioned this in your article. It's like John Wall and the Washington Wizards against mm-hmm. Carmelo Anthony and the New York Knicks. Yeah, and so I've we, we used to I had a, a podcast about the NBA with a, a guy named Justin Halpern, who was famous for the shit my dad says mm-hmm. phenomenon. And we would talk all the time, or I would sort of rant about the fact that what the NBA fails to see is that it's actually kind of a bad business model. The NFL does this so well of concentrating on the team. Mm-hmm. And I it, I don't know if it's conscious, but the NFL knows that like a guy's career may end in week 12. Like that you just don't know. And so I think from their perspective, it doesn't make sense to market the individual because you can count on the team, but you don't know about the individual. 
Michael Jordan was such a rare phenomenon, and I, I think you hit it on the head that David Stern saw how successful that was and thought, like, well, we'll turn every player who's a, maybe going to be a star, whether that's Allen Iverson or Grant Hill or whomever was kind of coming down the pike, into, like, the face of not only that team but, but the, the league. league yeah. And I think that just backfires because you get the Tracy McGrady's, like, God bless him, but he wasn't ever going to be Michael Jordan. Now you've devoted all of this money and marketing power to this guy who lets you down. So it, in a lot of ways, I think it would match up with not only our philosophy of the romance of basketball, but also from a marketing standpoint, it probably would make more sense to think more about the team. I wonder if the system, though, in basketball lends itself a little bit more to sort of rooting for the individual mm -hmm. because basketball, at least currently, uh, well, especially currently, but we're on shorter contracts. It seems like there's more player movement. Mm -hmm. Like Aaron Rodgers, for example. Like that guy probably isn't going anywhere. Right. He's going to play for Green Bay his whole career. Mm -hmm. You know, what Brett Favre, what he did, that seems rare. It, it mm -hmm. just seems like in basketball, there's not as and, – and, if you're on Twitter and you have statistics to back this up, I'd love to hear it. But it seems like in basketball, there's not as many guys that sort of stick with one team their whole career. And yeah. it's not just on the player. It's on the team, too. It just seems like we're mm -hmm. almost assets, and so let's get rid of this guy. Let's go that guy. A guy comes up, is a free agent every three or four years, and he can choose a team. I mean, you saw it with Miami when LeBron went to Miami. All of a sudden, Miami was like number one in merchandise sales. Mm -hmm. I think that's true, and I think that's the – the overriding school of thought. What I would, though, point to is the fact that the NFL is the most popular sport in America. Yes. And it is the most profitable sport in America. And so it seems that it would make sense to try that model for a little while and see if it worked out. Uh, I think, the and in a time, the time we live in, so if you put all of your marketing capital behind, say, LeBron James, and then LeBron James lets you down with an awful tweet or whatever it is, then suddenly that can all come crashing down. Whereas... The Cleveland Cavaliers may not let you down quite as rapidly because they're an entity that's less mm -hmm. likely to blow out an ACL or something like that. Yeah, I think the, you – I can't remember the exact language you used, but it, it, something about celebrating the individual over the team. Mm -hmm. I think the word I like to use is the individualization of a team sport. Yeah, I mean it's, it is because you're right that people love – the media in general has figured out that like people love individual stories. So if you go to a hurricane site, you will find one person who's affected by that and you talk to that person. Yeah. Like what was your life like because of this hurricane? That allows people in. They can understand one person's take on it. And I think that is what helps people relate to J.J. Reddick. They say like, okay, I can imagine what his life is like. He has told me about the fact that he's got two kids and a wife and like I have a wife and two kids. So I will root for J.J. Reddick and therefore I can forget about the, the Clippers become just kind of an ancillary yeah. entity in a lot of ways. Like, well, I'll root for the Clippers because J.J. Reddick plays for right. them, but I don't really care about the Clippers. The problem I think is that that will let you down over the long haul because again, you're going to retire at some point and then like there's no more JJ Reddick for that guy to root for. It's funny because growing up, I didn't really have, I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, so there's no mm -hmm. pro sports teams and there, no, no DC teams. I guess DC and Charlotte were the closest teams, but I never really right. rooted for any teams. I always rooted for individuals. And like I, I use the example all the time. 
about Manny Ramirez. So my mm-hmm. dad's from Cleveland, so I started watching the Indians when in the '90s they were awesome. Mm-hmm. And and then Your they're, they're, stupid Indians yeah. are just thrashing my Royals in the <laughs> AL Central. Right now. The, and then the GM broke the team up in the late '90s, and Manny goes to the Red Sox. And I said, "Oh, I'm gonna be a Red Sox fan now." Okay. And now I'm still a Red Sox fan, but it's it's because of of one guy. So, mm-hmm. but in basketball, the one thing specifically about the game of basketball, I don't know that there's a sport where an individual because of athleticism and also the fact that guys play both sides Mm -hmm. i don't know that an individual can have as great of an impact on a team sport as an individual in basketball for sure and there's just fewer players involved right like um that that means more when you've got one of these guys who can change things um and and that makes total sense i think too that as a kid you can pick a guy whose personality you think you relate to even though like the personality is crafted by some kind of narrative like i had a will clark poster over my bed when i was a kid because i liked something about the way will clark carried himself i don't know why um (laughs) but it it had to do with like oh he seems sort of aloof and i could imagine like being that guy (laughs) on a baseball team i haven't heard great things about well yeah i don't know him personally i think he's he's kind of not a great human i don't know but as an eight-year-old i didn't know that i just was like will the thrill is a great nickname i'm into that sweet swing it a sweet lefty swing (laughs) but yeah so like who were your so as a did you grow up loving basketball? Was that the thing? Yeah, I love basketball and baseball. Those were my two sports. And, and and in basketball, I mean, I think everybody that was sort of my age, and and you're a little bit older than me, but like I loved Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, as I got older and sort of got into junior high school and high school and started sort of playing a certain way, then it was like, all right, I want to play like Reggie Miller. I want to play mm-hmm. like Ray Allen. Right. God, I always see. I always hated Michael Jordan because he was <laughs> he was like the king right like yeah. he's and as a person i think especially from a small town in the midwest it's hard to relate to so of course i liked larry bird right like that's <laughs> impossible to get away from yeah. but like to me michael jordan i, I always hated i was like why would you root for michael jordan that's like rooting for the government like he's in charge like why would you that's like rooting for britain in the revolutionary war like he's the guy that we're all we should be rebelling against you're not proposing socialism or like, <laughs> like, no, but I'm serious. Like I'm proposing I, I, there's like a couple of things. What, is, what was the thing uh, you said in your, this, in, in the this, article? No, this is fine. Is I want this to a read red this. scare situation. No, no, no. Are we you, about to McCarthy me? No, like, you, you said in your, in your article, you say we also traffic proudly in individualism in the worship of self-sufficiency and in the stubborn belief that the world is or should be a meritocracy. Right. Well, I, th- I think I was talking about Americans in general. No, yeah. America in general. Mm-hmm. But but and then you you sort of related this whole story back to your experience in Europe. Mm-hmm. And there's a a great Zach Lowe piece. I know I mentioned Zach all the time on here, but I, there's a great Zach Lowe piece on Manu Ginobili recently, and they talk about these dinners that the Argentinian teams would go to after games together. They mm-hmm. would last way into the night, and there'd be wine and food, and they would mm-hmm. sort of get to know each other that way. And that's not really the experience <laughs> that I've had in the NBA. No, no, it is. But not. You had that experience in Europe. Yeah, I did. When I when I was in, so I played my first year in Greece, and there was a. I was 23 at the time. There was this 34 year old Bosnian dude who kind of took me under his wing. His name was Nenad Markovic. Had grown up in Sarajevo, watching the Serbs like come through and massacre people, and he kind of acculturated me to this idea of like you Americans are in such a rush to like get back to your apartments and do what exactly when we could be here as a group, like having wine and like a great Greek dinner, like what's better than that in life as a whole. And I think as a 23 year old, I was kind of resistant because I didn't really get it. Now as a 38 year old, I see that like, that is all there is really is like that 
that sense of uh, connection or or whatever. We're I think in the U.S. we're just so interested in like proving that we can do it ourselves or that we can do it by ourselves um, that we lose out on that. I think we like that's the great thing that I took from living in Europe is the beauty of a long dinner where you're just letting go and saying like, oh, actually, this is kind of the whole point of life is the fact that I'm here for three hours. And I'm having this really intense conversation with people who are a lot like me. Um, and I, th- and that, that was really hard to find in the NBA because everyone was so focused on that guy next to me is making 16 million and I'm only making 13 million. What am I going to do? Which is just a patently absurd thing to worry about. Like I remember in, it's, it's in gotten, Phoenix. by the way, it's gotten worse. Oh, I'm sure <laughs> no, and I, because of social media, it's gotten worse. Oh since yeah. You left the NBA. Oh, I can't it's, even imagine it. Cause everyone, cause you, you log on your, you get on your phone and it's, mm-hmm. it's in your face at all times. People commentating, people saying things, right. articles, but you can go scroll your, even you don't have to read your comments. You scroll down right. your timeline. You're going to see something about yourself. Yeah, no. And it's, it's not, it, it is human nature to get involved in that. Like it's not like, I think people forget that there's a reason that athletes Elite athletes are good because they have egos and because they believe themselves to be great, right? So there's a reason that John Wall is good, and part of that reason is he thinks he should be making more than everybody, right? That's how it, you can't, yeah. you as a coach have to sort of tone that down and be like, look, man, you're whatever the 32nd best player in the NBA. You're not the first best, but you kind of need to believe you're the first best in order to be good. I don't know though that that is healthy, and it seems like. A lot of European players, a lot of European teams are able to sort of chide each other and be like, look, bro, you're good, but you're not the best. You're the 32nd best. So calm the fuck down and like, let's hang out and talk about girls or something. But everybody here, like I can remember being in in Phoenix and it is something American about like Sean Marion was making $15 million a year. He was on a six or seven year deal. So he's guaranteed basically $100 million, right? And at one time I was in the like lounge watching Jake Vosco was in there watching a show about Milton's paradise lost on discovery channel, which is <laughs> super God. weird. Right. Uh, and, uh, and Marion walks in he looks at the TV for a second. He's like, yeah, that's what I need to do. I need to come up with an invention. That's where the real money is. First of all, it was on the Discovery Channel, but it wasn't about inventors. It was about an author. Right. Second of all, like, Sean, you have $100 million. How much do you think inventors make? Yeah. But, like, he's thinking, like, I have to do better than what I'm doing, which is, like, way better than anyone in the world, essentially. And yet we're still always thinking about, like, the next. What do we do next? What's the next contract or what's the next day hold? <laughs> and I just think, like, that's that eats you up eventually and it just, like, doesn't work out real well. I want to interject real quick. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to make it seem I, I, because we're not. I know we haven't yet, and and I don't want it to sort of be the narrative. But we're not singling out John Wall or Bradley Beal. For, <laughs> well, no, I'm for actually, whatever they said. I'm actually very supportive of that because yeah. it's honest. There's it, nothing. They're actually. I, I, it demonstrates a certain level of like forthrightness and intelligence to be able to say like hey look we don't have to like each other because it's a lot like you going to work at uh, state farm insurance you probably don't like everybody at your job and that's the way of it i think that it's very normal i think it's very normal i think it's just different in sports because it's such an intimate thing like i think when i think of like i actually relate really well to people who've been in the military because even though it's not of the same consequence like 
playing a, a sport, especially like college basketball, which can feel like you're being just browbeaten <laughs> constantly. It gives playing, you that playing same... at Duke felt like I was in the military. Did it without the bullets? Yeah, yeah I mean that's bit. how Iowa State. Maybe was. it wasn't. A, I wasn't serving overseas, but I was right. definitely at like Camp Benning. Yeah, and whatever. I think athletes get made fun. They're like, well, people are like, well, it's not. That's not as important. But when you're 19 years old, you don't able to grasp like what's important or not important you're just like i'm in the midst of this and it's pure chaos and i'm just trying to survive but i think it does even the the sheer fact that you're like in a locker room kind of naked together is like a very intimate thing and you're seeing each other at like your emotional peaks right like that's a big part of it too i can remember like i've cried in front of probably what five girls in my life but i've probably cried in front of 50 guys who I was in locker rooms with because of a loss or an injury or something like that. And it just breeds that in my mind, it breeds a need to feel like you can be vulnerable to feel like you can open up. And that though probably is somewhat unique to me because I'm just super touchy feely. I think a lot of guys, and this is, I think you could probably speak to this. I don't know how you felt about this, but a lot of guys aren't maybe quite as touchy feely as as I am, <laughs> admittedly. I mean, like, do you do you think that plays a part in it too? Like, you've got a mixture. I think we're all pigeonholed as jocks who don't yeah. care about emotions, but there's a wide spectrum of guys. In I that think there's world. there's two things to that. First of all, you know, I like what you said about each guy sort of being their own corporation, mm-hmm. and I think there is an element of that. And the second thing, more directly to your your question, is just every guy's a little different with how they're going to open up or not open up, and mm-hmm. um, and it seems like guys have become more vulnerable. Like it's okay now to be more vulnerable. Like the conversations yeah. I have now with got with teammates on the road mm-hmm. seem more real. Yeah, they seem more real. I yeah. hope they're real. It, I I would. I mean, I've I've cried and I, and I've been in locker rooms where, you know, we maybe ten of fifteen guys are crying after a loss, or mm-hmm. you know, one guy's totally hysterical because he's blaming himself, and, mm-hmm. and and six or seven guys are sort of you know embracing him and, mm-hmm. and encouraging him. So, I've seen it for sure. And then you you have the other side of that, of course, the the, the hard asses and the, the the sort of I don't want to say prideful guys, but the guys that sort of put on the front and right. don't, you know. I wonder guard. if some so like the NBA has oddly been co opted by the internet and kind of the hipster world mm-hmm. in a lot of ways in the last ten years, I would say. And so I think there is a sense of like a connection between those two worlds where musicians like the NBA and musicians are, are usually sort of assumed to be a little bit more emotional. I've always thought it was interesting that I came to basketball for the same reason that a lot of people like would find music or art or those sorts of things. Like it was a way to fit in. Um, and I think athletes a lot of times are a little more like that than the public realizes. Yeah. But because we're so big and strong, it is assumed that we must just be like socially gifted. They're like, well, they must have just gotten all the girls because they're like tall <laughs> yeah. and like their bodies are put together correctly. It's so funny you say that because you mentioned John Wall and I think any NBA player has to have a certain ego. It doesn't always translate into other areas of your life. Like you don't right. just all of a sudden become an incredible investor. Right. Because sure. you're an awesome NBA player and you have mm-hmm. an ego in that. Or you're not just... You're not a ladies' man just because you play in the NBA. Or that ego that you applied to basketball does not apply to the rest of the world. Yeah. You're listening to the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. Paul, give me a minute to tell my listeners about Outdoor Voices. Outdoor Voices is the active wear apparel brand for the guy who believes he could definitely nail an NBA 3 first try. 
for the guy who catches a foul ball without dropping his beer, for the guy whose last mile is faster than his first mile, and who every four summers convinces himself his Olympic dreams aren't quite extinguished just yet. It's the active wear apparel for the guy who's still got it. They've sourced the best technical fabrics in the world to produce streamlined gear that's built to last from the first sweat to the final whistle. Plus, it looks great without trying. It's called Technical Apparel for Recreation, top-notch activewear made for everything from trotting the bases at Beer League Softball to pushing the last miles of your next half marathon. You already get free domestic shipping in returns, but we'll sweeten the deal. Go to OutdoorVoices.com JJ, and Outdoor Voices will give you 15% off your first purchase with the coupon code JJ. That's OutdoorVoices.com JJ, and enter coupon code JJ at checkout for 15% off your new favorite high-quality activewear. And now a word from Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Fast, powerful, and completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork? With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this on your phone or tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com JJ. Equal housing lender, license in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Sorry about that. We had a little break in the action just now. We trailed off for about five minutes, and then I got a call from my producer that there was a thunderstorm in New York, and he lost service. And it got us started talking about how like nothing in our lives works correctly anymore. Nothing, like, nothing works correctly. ever works correctly. I want a, just the simplest washer and dryer. I don't mm-hmm. want the eco-friendly shit that right. works half the time. And why does it take... I set the dryer for 45 minutes and it takes two and a half hours to dry like eight articles That's of my son's so, clothes. Like Louis C.K. talks about how like we shouldn't complain about anything because he's like, well, we can, you know, from a plane 40,000 feet in the sky, we could like text our wife or something, right? Yeah. Well, maybe you can do that because half the time it doesn't work. Well, but so what's interesting is like we start to count on this technology and then it lets us down. It's like if we were, it, it reminds me of like if we were, sailing around the world if we were with Magellan and like <laughs> suddenly our map was just wrong like you're depending on that map so we've gotten dependent on our phone like I was sitting at a coffee shop this morning I just can't send a text I don't know why I'm in the middle of the second biggest metropolitan area in the country and like there's no texting and it's stupid because yeah 40 years ago I couldn't text but also 40 years ago you knew that if you picked up the phone it worked every time my first house I ever lived in was in 2006 I bought a house right after I got drafted mm-hmm. it had everything was like super basic in the house Right. I owned the house for like three years. I literally never made a call right. on the washer dryer, the AC system, the pool. It all worked correctly because mm-hmm. it was all just simple and basic. Right. The smart home stuff, it's driving me crazy. Yeah, every rental all... I've been in, my house in Texas, it just every other day, it's like something. We something. should all take a lesson from uh, Captain Adama in Battlestar Galactica. Have you, did you ever watch Battlestar Galactica? This the, is going to be new way version? over my head. <laughs> so they ha- they're they're in this they're on this ship where they refuse to connect to like the the mainframe basically, okay. and that's what saves them from getting taken over by the computer virus and everyone just stop listening. Digital. They're yeah. like Jesus Christ! I tuned in to talk about basketball. This is a perfect time to actually talk about 
a sort of Twitter topic that I brought up recently, mm-hmm. and and that's '90s email addresses. <laughs> and I shared on Twitter my first. I don't know why I thought of this the other day, but I was like, "Oh man, my first email address was JJ Shoot a three at AOL dot com." I th- really thought hard about it. And I was like, "Was it JJ Shooter three? <laughs> like, was I a shooter? <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> J- JJ Shooter three. So yeah, was it a was it a sentence? No. Or was it a it was, nickname? It was JJ Shoot A3 because right. I was number 25 when I first got the email and then eventually got to high school and was number four in high school. <laughs> um, I got So I got hit up on Twitter. Like People were sending me their email addresses, their first ones. Oh, right. There was some bizarre ones. I got to call out a couple NBA guys who sent me theirs. Doug McDermott, Love DeCourt 33. Love DeCourt. <laughs> Spell uh, with a D A L U V. That's an amazing fellow Iowa State guy. Briefly, there you go. It wasn't he? No, that no, was his dad. From, but he's his, from Ames. Yeah, he's, he's from, from Ames. his dad. Coached at Iowa State. He played at Creighton. Yeah, and then Frank Kaminsky with Sporty Man one zero nine zero. Sporty Man, that's fantastic. <laughs> and I said, "What's Frank?" I was like, "What's one zero nine zero two? He's like, "It's the it was the combination of my safe." <laughs> <laughs> Sporty Man, and your email address. Right. I feel like you had some witty shit. Like so you probably had the mine, wittiest of no, emails. No, mine are stupid. Mine were always Paul Shirley forty five because that was my college number. Oh, I do have an email address now that is my so called career at gmail dot com because that was the name of like my blog right. at ESPN for a long time. Yeah, and uh, and I used to get fan mail there mm-hmm. and or hate and mail. You still use depending. the email? Yes, I have. I mean, you know how it is. I, I probably have six email addresses at this point. <laughs> I have I have a number of them. It's it's really so I can have multiple Instagram accounts. Oh, <laughs> that's why I have multiple emails. That sounds vaguely nefarious, but okay. Uh, I have one. Well, like, I have like I have like my my Instagram. Right. I don't think people know this actually. I have my Instagram like JJ Reddick four, and right. then I have like a sort like of a, a passion Instagram, uh, like a, a very specific hobby yeah. Instagram. Yeah, like this is a part of the branding. Like you got to have the JJ Reddick brand, but then you can also have your personal like. My personal one that yeah. really I spend most of my time on. <clears throat> yeah. Do you have, so I have like, I for sure have a Hotmail address that is used specifically for any junk mail that I get. And I will put it on like anything where I know that, uh, oh, that's good idea. like I'm not, I don't want anybody to know this address. And every time I do it, I'm like, you got to know this is bullshit, right? Like I'm putting a Hotmail address <laughs> down. Like there's no way I'm checking that. <laughs> and every time they're just like, yeah, that's just his email. That's I guess just his email. he's old enough where that could be real. Uh, that's great. Speaking that's of great. branding, what's, I don't. Uh, this is more just my curiosity. So, is this? Are you going to podcast like oh, after is, basketball? Is that a thing? Are you going to go like media style? Are you going to write a book? Oh man! You know what is my dream is to write a book. Yeah, but I I just feel like the story. I don't want to write write the book mid story. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where where it ends. I don't know where it ends. I think that's. But smart. you know, I I want to play a few more years, and I don't. How know. old are you right now? Thirty two. Oh yeah, you got a ways to go. Yeah, I don't. I don't really necessarily want to like just be a podcaster when I'm done. <laughs> right. <laughs> but well, do you? So do you feel like you will want to get away from basketball, or will you stay in it, or what do you think? As I mentioned last week, I just had my second kid, my second boy. Who I listened to the podcast. He was born on my father's birthday. How about that? Congratulations. Thank you, man. And actually, my first son, he's born on Stan Van Gundy's birthday. So <laughs> I, it's, I know like five people are that have st- August birthdays. Are and two of them are my sons. Are like close with uh, that coach specifically? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I text he him He seems time. pretty great. He was the doing Gundy something the other like day, and he's really like, hey, I, I need your input on something. You know, Can you send me right. some ideas for this? And I was like, yeah, sure. Five minutes later, I'd written like an essay. But 
he he he's he's my guy. He's my guy. I don't I don't know that I want to be like involved in basketball. I do know that, especially with with two boys, man. I just want to be a dad. Mm-hmm. Like I, I you know I'm a little religious, and I believe we all have like callings in life. And like I don't know that like being a basketball player is my calling. Do you know what I mean? I always yeah, no, feel like I mean, there's something more. And we were, well, we, we were kind of talking about this in yeah. turn earlier about just being sort of jaded at the culture of sort of right. Sports, I think, like, but so, I appreciate basketball and I love the game and mm-hmm. I love competing. Right. And I take it very seriously. But at the same time, like I I, I recognize that I'm all I'm really doing is mm-hmm. putting like an orange ball into an orange hoop. Yeah, that's so people a lot of times will come to me when, maybe if I'm like complaining about my life because like I've really started over. Like I live in a two bedroom apartment with a roommate in LA. I'm yeah. writing, I run writers workshops. Like I am pretty far from the glory yeah. of staying in Ritz Carlton's <laughs> or traveling around the world. Yeah. And people will be like, "Well, why don't you just Have you ever thought about coaching?" Like that hadn't occurred to me. <laughs> oh, Really? Like maybe like that's nobody's ever done that, like play and then coach. And it is like you're saying that um, it becomes it. Basketball starts to feel a little like you're saying you appreciate it. I don't want to get you into trouble, but it feels petty when you look at it like a larger purpose. Um, And so it took me a long time to kind of figure out, like, what is this that I can do that is helping my fellow man more than just entertainment? And that's not to say there isn't value in sports because I am a firm believer in the value of sports and the lessons that it teaches, not just me, but the lessons Mm -hmm. that it teaches kids and and as far as being part of a team and camaraderie and all that. So I'm not like anti-sports, but I also – I think that the the thing is like you – the coaching thing is sort of if you're wired to be a coach, Mm -hmm. like if that's your passion and it's to teach Mm -hmm. and and grow people and manage people like – then I think that's a great thing to do. But if mm-hmm. you're coaching because you want to get a paycheck and it's easy, right. I don't know that that's really the incentive that I'm looking for, if that yeah. makes sense. And there was also, like, I just had this visceral negative reaction to guys that you could see didn't they didn't love coaching, but they loved the lifestyle they were in. So they yeah, kind of hung on that. to that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're, like you're saying, there's some guys who are just, like, natural you see coaching it. types sure. um and and you when you see that they love that it is cool i think what's so when you were talking about like sports does serve a purpose i think the problem i always have is that it seems like we've gotten a little we've like moved the needle towards a little a bit of obsession with sports in the u.s mm-hmm. that i think is slightly unhealthy so i think i've always had a little bit of a hard time with like just the beast it can turn people into as fans like that trips me out a little bit you know what I mean? In, in terms I mean, you of, must know this because in terms of, like, of the hatred that, that people well, have. Well, just like toward, the obsession with yeah. it, like where they, they have stopped thinking about their own lives because they're putting so much onto these like yeah. athletes. I mean, you must have seen some of that at Duke. And like you are a guy who was so well-known yeah. pretty early, pretty young. That I, I feel like that people were projecting some anger. Right. That's what Duke. I mean. Like, no, like I, I There is an element of that. And, and two, like this summer, like we saw it with Kevin Durant, mm-hmm. you know, I think. There was a little bit of an unhealthy obsession with like a like a twenty something year old sort of making a career decision that right. really anybody in the United States makes right. every day. Like right. it's normal to just be like, "Oh, my contract's up. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go work somewhere else." You right. know, that's that's fairly normal. I don't know that like a town needs to you know rename their town from Durant to Westbrook. Right. Like right. like they're trying to yeah. do in Oklahoma. <laughs> like, <laughs> That seems a little like he had to. I think he had to rename his restaurant because really? people were going on Yelp and writing such bad reviews of it. Like that's, <laughs> that's some... to me is a little unhealthy. But right. too, like the trolling, like on social media, mm-hmm. that is like 
like you like somebody has to actually like invest their time and energy and, mm-hmm. and emotions to go troll an athlete right like it seems yeah. like excessive to me like, yeah it just it feels i feel like i have better use of my time <laughs> right i think and when you are because it's easy on the outside to think like well this person isn't actually a human they're an entity right so they see jj reddick as an entity that can absorb whatever blows are thrown at it it becomes difficult to say like oh this guy has feelings and two kids and like belief systems and all of this (laughs) stuff like maybe i don't want to just call him the antichrist because he played at duke right no he just goes out and shoot jumpers that's all that matters to me right you you talked about this in a couple things i read but there there seemed to be some sort of hesitancy on your part like you, Mm -hmm. you mentioned that when you were filling out like insurance forms but I, I had this too. Like, there's a hesitancy at times to like tell someone you're a, a pro athlete. Like, mm, I'm on the plane yeah. traveling next to someone. You get in a conversation <laughs> right. with the person next to you, right? And they're telling you like all the stuff they do. And they, mm-hmm. What do you do? And you're like, man, like I'm a I'm a pro athlete, partially mm-hmm. because of sort of the stereotypes that surround athletes, right? But also, it, like, it is there is an element of like it's a little trivial. Yeah, <laughs> right. I'm not a brain surgeon. Uh, yeah, 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 not- yeah. And I think that like I have a hard time now sometimes because I'm tall enough that people assume yeah. that I play or played. I'm still young enough looking where like sure. people are like, well, maybe he's this is like a current professional basketball yeah. player, and it thus colors their ability to see what I do now. They're like, well, you used to play professional basketball, so therefore this is what come next comes yeah. next because I'm used to that. I so I teach at a a prep school for the police academy. I teach English and creative writing there. And one time my students were quizzing me about what, they're like, are you, so you're just like volunteering to do this, Mr. Shirley? Because you must be rich, right? right. I'm like, no, no, I averaged $70,000 a year for nine years, which is like way better than a lot of people from age 23 to 32, but is not Shaquille O'Neal money at all. And they're like, what? Did you (laughs) know, Mr. Shirley, that an LAPD officer starts at $84,000? So, like, a cop <laughs> makes more than I made as a professional athlete. Yeah. But I'm if I get on a plane and I say to someone, well, yeah, I'm a writer now, but I used to do X, Y, and Z for so long. They're like, well, they're in their head, it trips over to that, well, you must be right. this. Like, that, it's such an easy – it's like being a model or an actor. Like, it just – it's so easy to categorize that person. I've actually had that thought recently, like, a couple times about sort of I'm now retired – Mm-hmm. I'm on a plane mm-hmm. or I'm doing something socially and I'm right. in a conversation with someone and having to use like the I used to right. play professional basketball and sort of the implications of that. Yeah, there's a lot and, of them. And, and first of all, it's an, it's scary. It's scary mm-hmm. to say like, okay, this is something I've done my whole life. I'm not going to do anymore. But yeah, the implication, the social implications, the sort of the, the preconceived notions that someone may have about you. And, and like you said, they go to a place like, oh, you must... Mm-hmm. B X Y and Z because right. you did this. Right. I notice that like I'm I am not a family man like you. I notice it with like girls that I'm dating or trying to date. Yeah. They just make those assumptions right. about you. Somebody texted me the other day like, "Are you you probably never hear no from girls?" I'm like, "What are you talking about?" I'm like this semi anxiety ridden dude that like it was constantly being shut down in part because people assume certain yeah. things about me because I was a professional athlete. By the way, I did like two years of therapy when I stopped playing to deal with like the identity crisis. Yeah. So don't be afraid to like give yourself a couple years. I'm to a firm believer in therapy, man. I, I was in therapy for three years, man. Oh, I, I wish I would yeah. have done it more when I played. Yeah, I was in therapy. Yeah, it's well, not like therapy, not like it was more just like 
talking to someone. You, you gotta you gotta talk. To Way people. to back away from it. I'm not crazy, Paul. I'm not crazy. I wasn't well, like so, medicated well, or anything. What I think is interesting, like you are such a great shooter, and shooting is such a weird mental and psychological mm-hmm. exercise. Like I. Yeah toward the end of my career became more of a shooter than I had been before. And it was trippy when you start thinking about being counted on to do this one thing yeah. that you really have no control over. Right. right. You can't just go out and play hard. Like it's not right. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's not like there's like, like every game. There's this inherent pressure mm-hmm. to make shots. Right. It's not like, be, like if it's a, a f- burden. I'll <laughs> be honest. It's a burden. Oh, I'm it's sure. A burden. No, I, I've, so I had a, I have a girlfriend or an ex-girlfriend who uh, was a big Clippers fan. So I've actually watched way more Clippers games than I, – because I don't watch the NBA. Like, I don't <laughs> care. That's fine. <laughs> but I've watched more of your guys' games than a lot of teams in the last few years. And so I I'd always kind of focused on, like, your, your style of play in particular because it is weird to have this – it's like being a pinch hitter in baseball, basically, if you are known as a shooter. Now, obviously, you – are more than that as a basketball player and an excellent defender from what everybody <laughs> says. But it is a strange psychological phenomenon to be counted on to do this one very specific job within the game. Whereas if you were a free safety in, F- in the NFL, you're just like, I'm just reacting at all right. times. Like where the ball goes, I'm just right. figuring that out and going right. there. It is. It, it, it gives me anxiety. And I want to ask you about your anxiety. <laughs> you're on the chair now. No. Yes. Uh, so as I'm reading like about your career, I started getting anxiety myself <laughs> because like I am such a planner and I and I like to sort of be in routine and regimented and like 11 teams, five countries in four years. Like what was your level of anxiety? Was there ever a point where you got you got to the point where like I may only be here two weeks and I'm OK with that? Um, yeah. And it ended up being so I played for nine years and I played for 17 teams in the end. Oh, wow. um, and. I think what gave me the most, like, I actually hate schedules. Like, I just can't deal with them. (laughs) Um, But, like, it gave me, I was a little anxious to know, like, oh, I got to be there at 1230, which means I should be there at 1220 today to do this. I think what gave me the most anxiety was, like, because as we were talking about, you know that on a basketball team, there has to be some level of chemistry. And so the, the anxiety of, like, I'm flying to Spain, and I may only be there for a month, and I have to try to figure out the dynamics of this team in about two days so that I can fit in and like help them in some way that was what was like the most the basketball by the end of my career i was kind of aware that like i'm not going to be able to do much about that anymore that gave me less pause than just i have to connect with these people really quickly makes sense and i'm assuming there was a a, probably a language barrier as well yeah that doesn't help yeah it's not only that you're like playing in spain but you're also playing with a croatian guy who hates the serbian guy and they don't trust the bulgarian guy whatever (laughs) like that adds to it was there ever a place that you went and you were like, man, what the fuck am I doing here? Russia. I played in <laughs> yeah. Russia for a little while and I'd always wanted to go. Like I thought yeah. it would be fascinating to get to play in Russia. And they had like in the, at the time, the Russian teams had a lot of money through semi questionable means. Sure. Um, but I got there and it was scary. Like I was scared the whole two months I was there. And I hate even saying that because I, when I went there, I thought like, oh, this I'll be the cosmopolitan American traveling off to Russia and living his life. But I was just terrified the whole time I was there. It's It really is surprisingly third world. Um, really? I thought like, oh, this, this was like 2005. So it was yeah. early Putin, post Yeltsin. And I thought they had kind of like put stuff together, but it was rough. I mean, people, they were telling stories about people like stabbing 
dudes in nightclubs with syringes filled with X disease. And, and then maybe that was a myth, but it was scary enough because I think I had grown up in the 80s thinking like red scare all the time yeah. that like anytime I heard yeah. the Russian language, I started to freak out a little bit. So I actually turn, I turned down and this will maybe seem paltry to the NBA world, but I turned down $275,000 to stay there for five months because I was like, I got to go. I have to get out of here. That's, that's insane. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was that bad. Yeah. I was just like, I have to, I'm leaving because I hate this so much. I just find it, I find it fascinating because going back to, you know, being a pro athlete and like sort of the, the idea that comes with that about the lifestyle you live, like for a, don't take offense to this, but for a fringe NBA player, no, you, I'm the not, life I'm is so offense. different, man. It's so yeah, different. It is. And you, were mean, a, you were on a 10 day contract at one point. Yeah, I was NBA. on, it's I like, was a, on a 10 day with the, with the Hawks at one point. I, the next year I signed a 10 day with the bulls and then ended up there for the rest of the year. But I also had my kidney and spleen ruptured. And so I didn't get to play much the rest of that year. Obviously. Uh, then the next year, I was my my most stability in the NBA was I had a half year deal with the Phoenix Suns when they were when we we slash they were really good. Um, but it was strange because I never felt that sense that I should fully participate somehow. You know, like you would, yeah. we would go do the autograph sessions. I was like, I'm not sure you want my autograph. <laughs> like you, it seems like I'm the same as Amari Stoudemire, but I'm not. <laughs> like you should keep on going down the line to him. So that was weird, especially when you're like in college, just like we all were, I was enough of a star that like I was used to the ego of that, but then you're backing away from it. But you're also aware, like I need to have enough confidence to believe that I'm just as important to this, but let's be realistic. So there's this constant like waffle going on. I can see why you needed therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my brain was not probably suited for. Dude, that's how my brain works. It's for, all good. Uh, Constantly <laughs> analyzing athlete. everything. Yeah, well, it serves you really yeah. well if you think about like yeah. when you're on the court, you're just so hyper aware. Yeah, that's that a, yeah. can be helpful. Yeah, but if you're left to your own devices, it can tear you up a little bit. Sure. You're listening to the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. Paul, I have to tell my listeners about SeatGeek. As a lot of you may know, buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time. It's always been hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to, and none of those older ticket sites want to change that. But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. SeatGeek is always the first place I go to to look for tickets to a game or concert. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I just used it the other day to look for tickets to see the Dodgers. Everything about SeatGeek is designed to make life easier for sports and music fans. SeatGeek does all the price comparison for you by searching multiple ticket sites and ensuring that you get the best possible deal. SeatGeek does all the work, and you save time and money. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. Best of all, my listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, and click add a promo code. Enter promo code JJ. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code JJ today. Now let's get back to this week's guest, Paul Shirley. In my research on you, I discovered that you're a huge music fan, mm-hmm. and I thought it would be appropriate for this week's four on four to do our four favorite 
albums of all time. Now, these are not necessarily the best albums of all time, like the most critically acclaimed. Right. These are our these four. These are our four favorite. Like, we, we're going to play these. I'm going to press play on number one and play it all the way through and just mm-hmm. enjoy it. Yeah, that's um, so I was uh, I was on a date recently with a girl who was a little younger than I was. Yeah. And I asked her, like, what's your favorite album? And she's like, what? <laughs> she's like, why would I? I don't consume music that way. And I was like, well, uh, technically. <laughs> I was like, well, but, you know, like, there's something beautiful about being able to. And I think this is true. Like, there's something wonderful about this person or this group has created this piece of art that is supposed to last this amount of time and they pick the songs and put them in this order for a reason reason. in the same way that you would write a novel and put the chapters in that order and so that's like as i talk about albums i love i think that these will all be albums that like seem like they had a purpose kind of they could be any genre by the way and this was a hard exercise for me to do but i just i'm gonna start and i'm gonna go with my my, my first one we'll just go one at a time but my first one is my favorite rap album of all time this was the hardest one for me to pick Okay. Um, because, because you because you why? Because you felt like you had to pick a rap album and you wanted to like narrow <laughs> no, it down. Because I love rap and and right. honestly, if I'm in a rap mood, I, I, I there's like five to ten albums where I'll just go to and just like listen to them. And the reason it was really hard is because I I do have a lot of sort of favorite rappers. Mm-hmm. And Jay Z is not my favorite rapper. He's mm-hmm. certainly a great rapper, but his Blueprint album mm-hmm. is my favorite rap album ever. A couple of reasons why. First of all, I know everybody loves Reasonable Doubt and all that like that. You know, I get it. I get it. All right. I was like fucking 10 when that album came out. Right. So like, I can't. Yeah. It just doesn't relate. So so Blueprint came out my senior year of high school. Okay. And every it was a great year. You know, you, you finished the year. We won a state championship that year. Mm-hmm. And I moved on to my life. It was just like a transitional year in my life. And so every time I hear that album or a song off that album. Uh, it just reminds me of a very, very happy and stable time in my life. Nice. Did you know that? So I, I wrote a piece about this for Playboy, actually, um, because I'd read something on Slate about how there's a reason that people attach such memories to the albums they loved in high school or middle school. It's because our brains are so in such the throes of development that we can't help it. Like that's why people like my age will say grunge is the best music of all time because like it was that time in our lives. Now what I think it's not, what I think is interesting (laughs) about that is that conceivably if you happened to have like come of age in a sort of wonderful time for music you probably have like slightly better taste than someone who sure. came of age at a shitty sure. time for sure. music if, if i did this exercise with my parents right you know their their four music choices would be you know vastly different mm-hmm. than sort of what we're going to talk about although i do have one van morrison i feel like your parents <laughs> would like van morrison i feel like my dad was like really into neil young <laughs> ain't nothing wrong with that there's my, a lot of my, he actually this is his, his his claim to fame in the rock world to me he claims that he um randomly got asked to be a bodyguard at a led zeppelin concert wow <laughs> yeah. is your dad a big fella uh no but i'm sure he was on acid <laughs> <laughs> So he played the part of a big dude. There, no, he's 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 six five. He's a scrawny little dude, but he was just probably influenced. Uh, right. You know what I mean? Right. All right, give me your give me your first. Uh, uh, album. I'll save my favorite album of all time for last. In my top is Smashing Pumpkins' Siamese Dream because I think similarly to you, it came out when I was a sophomore, junior in high school. Yep. It seemed cooler than I was. The Smashing Pumpkins have since been unmasked is not as cool <laughs> like yeah. billy, billy corgan's a little bit of a wacko yeah. but at the time it seemed so like 
complicated and dreamy. And then I actually saw Smashing Pumpkins was my first concert ever when I was a freshman in college. And it began my obsession with live music where I felt like yeah. completely invincible when rock music was being played in front of me. And I think has like changed the way I've looked at like social interactions in that every time I go to a great show, I feel much better. It's almost like a religious experience. I, I would agree with you. When then the rest of my life, like there's, I don't, I didn't even, so I didn't even drink until I was 27, but good for you. I felt <laughs> good for you. Kudos, Paul. <laughs> but I felt kind of drunk without knowing it at like a really great rock show where yeah. it just like there was this wall of noise coming. What was at your me. first concert you ever went to? Did I you just remember? told you, motherfucker. Oh, Smashing what? Pumpkins. Oh, <laughs> Mine was Third Eye Blind. So you oh, <laughs> total respect for that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I had had about five and a half beers. Um, <laughs> There's no, I mean, Third Eye Blind is. I was they like, just, I was like 15. Oh, yeah. so you were, so you were going to concerts in high school. You were much cooler than I. The was. Roanoke Civic Center. Mm, the nice. Roanoke Civic Center. Yeah. I will always admire that guy, Stephen Percy. Maybe is that his name? I couldn't tell you a thing about the band. He dated Charlize Theron for a long time. Oh, nice. Which is good. Okay, um, what's your what's number? Not necessarily number two, but second of these options. So going back to live music, best mm -hmm. best show I've ever seen was Phoenix at Lollapalooza in 2010, which I probably was at. Yeah, we were just because I was writing this, about yeah. music for yeah. ESPN at the time, and it was there by myself. So they played Saturday night. Green mm -hmm. Day was the headliner that Saturday night. So on the other oh, side of Grant Park, right. Green Day was playing. I definitely went to Phoenix. Okay. I, we were probably both there. Okay, yeah. So, and they were just so humble and like so grateful for the experience. Mm -hmm. Their album had been out for I think a year at that point, but 2009, Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, and it was it was also really to me at least the first time I'd ever really gotten sort of like the synth pop rock songs, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it was just a different sound for me. So, because of that, and because of the the show, and I saw him twice that summer. That would be my, my number two in my four favorite albums. I think you time. justified that really well. Yeah. Well done. Right. <laughs> um, a second of mine, I will, so I will stay in that era, which is to say uh, Pearl Jam's 10. What? No? And I just. <laughs> <laughs> you, you frustrated <laughs> with me? No, or are frustrated. you? <laughs> You're just picking great albums. I mean, it's. Well, so like that one's a kind of another. It's like a person from whatever, 1967 saying like, well, rubber soles. I yeah. mean, to me, so I, I think there is some sense that you could either be a Nirvana fan or a Pearl Jam fan. There's a guy named Stephen Hyden who wrote a great book about rock and roll rivalries. And he talks about the dynamics of those two. It's, of course, like splitting hairs. But yeah. I think to me, Nirvana seemed a little too scary and Pearl Jam was more like the rock and roll that I had grown up listening to. But with enough yeah. of an edge that I dug it also eddie vetter and i have the same birthday so i feel like that yeah. gives me reason to, uh, to love it. so i had jerry ferrar on about a month ago and we talked about sort of the uh his favorite tv shows mm -hmm. and he mentioned of course because he's an hbo guy but also because they're amazing shows sopranos and the wire mm -hmm. so i never watched the sopranos of the wire so those are the two um, shows that i'm gonna try to get through this season mm -hmm. and pearl jam is sort of a similar thing with me like yeah I, I listened to some of their songs. I'm like, oh, that's really good. But I've never really gotten into Pearl Jam. I can see that because I was 15 probably when yes. Pearl Jam came. So you were probably like eight, eight. or nine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which is nine. not peak listening. And <laughs> yeah. by the time you were probably 15, Pearl Jam was like into yeah. their yield phase, which was great if you were already a Pearl Jam fan. But to like get into them yeah. then was a little tricky. I was not 
old enough to be like a part of the grunge movement. Oh, I'm sure. 90s. Yeah. And I was, I was just like barely there. Like I was yeah. just old enough where it was like, do you remember right the in. movie? Well, it was a book by John Krakow, which is why I love it, but into the wild. Oh, of course. So Eddie yeah. Vedder did the soundtrack for it. And, yeah. And I'm, that, I'm a fan of that. That song he does big son or something like, yeah, it's, yeah, I, yeah. I've definitely like cried to that song about 20 <laughs> times due to breakups. That's the best. Like everything's going to be okay. Even yeah. though it's awful right now. I told you beforehand what my four were. I'm gonna actually, I'm gonna actually make a little audible here. Audible. I will say quickly. I, I the only band I've ever seen on back to back nights is Pearl Jam. I saw them once in Kansas City, and then a friend of mine and I drove across the state to see them in St. Louis, and ended up in the front row to watch Pearl. Incredible. Jam. And it, I mean, Pearl Jam. There, I think that's where what people miss out on about Pearl Jam now. I think if you were an alien dropped here, you'd be like, this band hasn't put out great songs in. 15 or 20 years but they're such a good live band yeah that it the people who are into it just understand that that's really what they yeah. are it makes sense i i, I kind of had five so that's fine. i'm gonna eliminate <laughs> it's your podcast i'm gonna no i'm gonna eliminate of monsters and men my head is an animal you're eliminating that I'm, one they're not in my top four anymore how old is that album uh, five years four years See, like i have this theory that you can't no dude don't get me on that because I, no, I've really? tried to listen to all well, this. No, I've I, I listened to so much music. And it, well, no, I'm saying that like my sense is that for me, when yeah. I when I make my friends and I do like our top ten list, it needs to be. And I know you're break, you're going to break this rule later, I think. Um, but it needs to be music that was released in your lifetime because then you can understand its. Yeah, I do, I do break this rule with my fourth. And thing, it yeah. needs to have been at least five years since it came out because for the same reason that you're going to write your book after your career is done, because then that allows you the perspective to understand like. Yeah. Oh, well, the Clippers years were great, but the, who'd you play for? Magic years yeah. also had their importance. I also had right? two months in Milwaukee. Okay. We don't like to talk about this. No, I'm just kidding. I always say that on my podcast and everybody's like, oh, you're bashing Milwaukee again. I'm not bashing Milwaukee. Milwaukee's the city a great of, town. I'm not bashing Milwaukee, the just city of. Certain, it's an awesome city. Certain elements of the. So, okay. So what's your. So, All right, so I'm, my audible is, this is kind of maybe obscure, but Milo Green. Oh. They're a band here in LA. Right. Uh, their first album, self-titled Milo Green. Uh, I've heard of them. I've never um, seen them or I, listened to them. So they they crushed it. It's a little mm -hmm. folky. It's okay. a little folky. Right. And it and, feels like this was your folk slot because it was yeah. either of Monsters and Men yeah. and or then, Milo Green. And then they they released a second album and it was a totally different sound. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't enjoy it as much, and I'm friends with them, and I will be honest, I didn't enjoy it as much. Graham, I'm sorry. <laughs> But That's, their first album is one of my favorite four albums ever. Okay. Easy. And it, it, it's easy. It's, All right. It's, I will. I was I will, listening to it before you came in. I'm was, going to buy that this afternoon yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you still buy albums? I like do. CDs? No, no. I mean, like, do you just buy I, MP3s and This is what we were them. talking about earlier with, like, how things are supposed to be easier. Right. Streaming sucks to me. It's awful. It's That's awful. What, like, I, just wanna, trying I just want to have, like, the actual MP3 embedded have, on my phone. Yeah, I have an old brick iPod with 120 yeah. gigabytes that yeah. is my music player because I can always count on it. I, I don't have to worry it. about like, yeah. well, is it connecting or am I using up all of the... Am I driving under are... the tunnel underneath LAX? Right. Like right. I'm going to lose it. Yeah. I will buy Milo Green this afternoon. Okay. It is, you, you raised an interesting point about when you live in LA, you were saying like, yeah. I didn't like the second album as much. When you live in LA, you get exposed to a lot of artistic projects by your friends and it's tough <laughs> to navigate sometimes because <laughs> you don't want to say... Yeah, you know what? I really love that third they, song. They became my friends because of the first album. Okay, like we, we, I just kind of reached and then out I dropped them. them because of no, the they, album. they, they, they flew all the way from LA to Virginia to play at um, my my charity event that I had for my foundation in Roanoke, and they're just good people. But their their first album is is the tits. It's all amazing. Right. Yeah. This afternoon, it's on my list. Right. Uh, my so I've got two left, 
and this is probably my second favorite album of all time, is uh, Lateralis by Tool. I'm a, Tool is my favorite band. Okay, and that makes people it all, people always have the same reaction because Tool has a certain awesome, Tool has a certain like reputation in the world. I think, but they somehow managed to like. No, I like Nickelback too, man. That's cool. <laughs> they navigate Tool navigates like the psychedelic metal, yeah, really intelligent rock. I mean, yeah. like there's one of their songs they wrote according to the uh, Fibonacci sequence, like That's the lyrics, cool. yeah. Like are along those lines. Yeah. Danny Carey is the drummer. He's from Kansas. He always wears, he often wears a Clippers jersey when he's drumming. We should get him in a JJ Reddick jersey. We should actually. Do you listen to Tool ever, or is that too far? I did in college. Yeah, okay, I did in college. Yeah, for they're sure. also like college was my like my exploratory period, and then I was like, <laughs> then it was like four straight years of just hip hop from like 2006 to like 2009. Yeah, that makes sense. And then my brother started working for a band, managing a band like what an all band? rock band. It's obscure, okay. on, Honor by August, and right. um, and he like got me into alt rock that way, and that's right. sort of where I started listening to everything. But my favorite album of all time. Should come as no surprise if you've listened to this podcast before, but it's uh, The Boss, Bruce Springsteen, Born to Run. Breaking Your Rule, this album was was yeah, when uh, did it, put out like in 1976. 1976. Yeah. yeah. So Your favorite Springsteen album is Born in the USA, which came out in 84, which is the year I was born. Oh, yeah. But for me, it's 76. There's something about the beginning of Backstreet's, the first mm-hmm. like 45 seconds. Like if I could wake up to those 45 seconds of music every day. Nice. I feel like I'd be just cheery. So I have, um, I think I have four or five Springsteen records that I listen to on nice. my, my, I don't never want to become a record person, but now I'm a record person, which is yeah. obnoxious, but I came to it the right way. You fit the bill, man. My, You're a writer. <laughs> yeah. My great aunt I died. sports. <laughs> yeah, I know. Such a, <laughs> such a hipster. Uh, my great aunt died and she had this old, Magnavox record player from the 50s like one of those suitcase ones that the speaker like opens up out of it yeah. and it just sat in my grandmother's house and I was like I don't want to be one of those record people but if nobody wants this I'll take it and there's just something about like listening to yeah. Born to Run or something like that on a record player yeah. that just makes it all connect do you have a record player? I don't oh I don't. we gotta get you a record well, player well I don't have space born... right now because I'm just renting a house here and it's a very small house because <laughs> right. it's LA you're fighting through it <laughs> uh, and I've got two kids and it's we got a lot of cribs a lot oh, of rock and plays right. and mamaroos right. and you don't even know about what I'm saying I don't yeah. no um, <laughs> someday I will someday well, so, you will do you okay? I, my problem, my only problem with Bruce Springsteen is that the first time I saw him live, it was yeah. amazing. The second time, I was much closer. I was in the pit, yeah. and I was annoyed by all the rich people yeah. who were there because I think Bruce Springsteen plays the everyman part, but it's a slight facade, and that bothers me now. Does that bother but, you? But is all? that because he's a victim of his own success? Like at what point? He is. Like when I mean, you made has, hundreds of millions I mean, of dollars? Has, yeah, you have a quarter billion dollars at your disposal. I just here's what I love about Bruce Springsteen. Tell me. I saw him in 2003. Mm-hmm. He had performed the night before in D.C., had taken a bus down to uh, the Raleigh-Durham area. Mm-hmm. He played a show in front of like 60,000 people that night at, at UNC's Keenan Stadium. Mm-hmm. He played for three and a half hours. Uh, it, it was like it was the first and only show he was ever going to play. Yeah, that's true. And he had, I think, I think Greetings from Asbury Park came out in 1973. Mm-hmm. So this, is, this is 40 or, yeah. 45. 40 years 40 later. Years, 40, 40 years, years later. later. Yeah. 
the guy doesn't need to be doing that. He yeah, just, he's that's just true. passionate about it. I mean, and a, there is a he's, lot, and he of... still. Re- I mean, he still releases good music. And we should note too. I, sh- I have to note, like, I was in college, graduating from high school. Um, you know, nine eleven happened September of my senior year, and the Rising came out right. the following year, and it was sort of an ode to New York City, and, and mm-hmm. it was a hugely impactful album on me, and that's sort of what got me into Springsteen. Oh yeah, I could see. I mean, because yeah, if you're in high school. I was a freshman in college when I right. started listening to the Rising. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that album was great. It doesn't hold up really well. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So. Yeah. It's a little overwrought. You're like, yeah. oh, take it easy. But I will say that. So I think he does a really great job of something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is, um, and I was listening to to Blake Griffin talk about like doing stand up and the pressure of making people laugh when you're on stage. I do a fair bit of public speaking now and I've recently had this fight where I started thinking, I started thinking I was good at it and then (laughs) started worrying a lot about like, are people laughing or all of that? And what I've, I'm slowly getting back to is this idea of like, if I can connect to just telling a story and like really paying attention, like, is this person, are they getting out of this what they need? And am I getting out what I need? I think Springsteen does a good job of of just like I'm going to care passionately about these songs I'm singing tonight yeah. and therefore everybody's going to have a great time. It seems like that would be impossible to fake. It is. Although I've heard some horror stories about him selling out shows and then coming to the stage and putting up like a little like tent and bringing out his acoustic guitar for three hours. Oh, that would be <laughs> People like yeah. wanting to leave. You yeah. know, he's like, oh, I'm just going to do well, something different tonight. I mean, maybe try- he was, yeah, maybe I'm not going to play the hits. <laughs> right. Maybe he was trying to connect with how he felt at the time. Uh, I don't know. No, but if he, like, I, I, it's so hard. Like I go through sort of his anthology and I, I go album by album. And I'm like, oh my God, this album has like nine good songs on it. Oh mm-hmm. my God. this And it's like, you're six albums into his anthology and you've now got like 42 songs that you love. Right and right. can relate to and mm-hmm. you're halfway through i mean it's it's incredible the longevity and the sort of like we were talking about with like pearl jam like he made great music for a long time mm-hmm. yeah like original great music for right. a long time i think that is especially in the time in which we live where rock and roll music's probably been around for if you if we really got into it 60 years and Bruce Springsteen's been involved in 40 of those years and is still able to perform in a relevant manner. That's kind of remarkable. That's why you got to give props to people like the, you know, the stones and Mm -hmm. obviously Paul McCartney. Although on my very first podcast, I did say that the the Beatles were one of the most overrated things ever. This is music to my ears because I once wrote a column for ESPN about how the Beatles were the most overrated band and got like hate mail because of it. People wanted to murder me. Paul and I just high fived. <laughs> I mean, like that's. I guess my problem has always been with the Beatles. That, of course, if you were there and you were into it, great. But like people I meet now who are like the Beatles are my favorite band. Like, well, that's real original. Like, be different somehow. <laughs> like, don't say that. Uh, but then we can... you get the other side of that though, which also annoys <laughs> me is when people just like pick something so fucking obscure true i guess one of my problems with the beatles argument is that um there were a lot of really great bands at the time who do not get the credit that the beatles get because of the mythology that we attach to the beatles like if i listen i listen to this dave clark five greatest hits album which was like the same era and people are like oh they're just copying the beatles well they all just came up at the same time and that was the sound and I would say, like, I love listening to the Dave Clark Five, and probably the Beatles are 1.1 times as good as the Dave Clark Five, but <laughs> yeah. 300,000 times as famous. Yeah. Anyway, so my favorite album of all time is Octung Baby by U2, which 
I bought as the first CD that I ever purchased with my own money. I hated it when I got home. I was like, this is unlistenable noise. I don't know. I think I liked it because of the song One, which was like the radio hit at the time. Mm -hmm. But really, for some reason, have always connected to that very strange album by U2, which was a weird departure from where they were going with like the Sunday Bloody Sunday days or the whatever, with or without you days. It was the beginning of them getting weird, and then they totally like went to shit in about 2002, and I've had to disown them slightly. Sorry. What was that? <laughs> Sorry. I was trying to get the name of the album I was thinking of. Oh. For, like One of the first albums I ever bought was Joe, All That I Am. Did you ever listen to that? It's no. R&B. Oh, no. I was so good. My sisters told me, do not let your mother hear this. <laughs> They would, nobody would have said that about you too, because it was you too. But, but. I, you know what's funny? It's it's I almost because I almost put in the Joe thing mm -hmm. just because in the late '90s when I started buying CDs and right. listening to music in the early 2000s when I became a college student and could pretty much do whatever I wanted, mm -hmm. that was like the golden age for awesome R and B. Yeah, that's true. Donnell Jones, Usher yeah. was putting good stuff out. Well, yeah, I mean, I I was uh, Joe. I was a more slightly earlier than that. My experience with that was like, and I don't know if we could even call this R and B, but it was Salt and Pepper. Yeah, it was uh, a lot Jodeci. of a lot of uh, PM Dawn. Like I'm way into. I still love PM Dawn. I don't know what we would call PM Dawn. It's just like pop. <laughs> Listen to okay. I'm buying Otis Green. Was it Milo Green? Milo Sorry, Green. My, Milo Green. I'm buying all of these albums. You, you should just buy mentioned. the Bliss album by PM Dawn. Okay, bless PM Don. I'm writing that all guy, this down. The, one of the dudes from PM Don just died this year. Oh, I did. I did see that. And yeah. uh, that's where name recognition. Just okay, right. Name. Yeah. Now, 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 I know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, this has been an awesome episode, Paul. Thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks um, for having me. I was telling yeah. someone today, like I was oddly, like I don't, I sometimes do podcasts, and I used we used to have this podcast, right. but I was really looking forward to coming on. And well, I hope you had a good time, man. This is great. Meeting you as well. So This is great. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Vertical Podcast with J.J. Reddick. I'd like to thank today's guest, Paul Shirley. Remember to subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes wherever you listen to the podcast, and be sure to subscribe to The Vertical Podcast with Woj and The Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and you can now hear the Vertical Podcast Network every weekday at 3 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Satellite Radio on Sirius Channel 214, XM Channel 203, and on the Sirius XM app on Channel 967. My podcast airs on Sirius XM every Monday and Thursday, the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix every Tuesday, and the Vertical Podcast with Woj every Wednesday and Friday. And you can always tweet me at JJ Reddick for any questions and comments. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, Mac Weldon, Outdoor Voices, and SeatGeek. Be sure to support them the way they support us here at the Vertical Podcast. I'll catch you next week. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice.